All right, let's turn over our notebooks and we're going to review our Wellspring purpose and disciplines. When something becomes very familiar to us and then we hear it yet again, I think it's really easy to tune it out, isn't it? I think Anne proved that a few weeks ago when she handed out the um, Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines and we had to fill in the blanks. I don't know how you did, but my guess is that there probably were a few empty spaces on our papers. And so um, because these are familiar, I want to encourage you this morning as we go over them yet one more time, um, that you really think about them and allow them to impact your thinking. I want them to allow my impact. I want them to impact my thinking in regards to where we need to set our focus and our hearts. So let's look at the Wellspring purpose, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so they live gospel-transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Have you ever noticed how seemingly simple our Wellspring purpose is? Shepherd our hearts to Jesus, live gospel-transformed lives, and the church is strengthened. The church is actually strengthened by our faithfulness. And I just want to say that I am so encouraged that so many of you are taking this purpose seriously. Discipline number one is becoming a pattern in many of your lives. And that pattern is growing into a desire. And that desire is growing into a hunger for prayerfully shepherding your hearts toward God through his word and in particular the gospel. But... At the same time, when I realize how overwhelmingly simple our purpose is, I can shepherd our hearts, live gospel-transformed lives, and the church is strengthened. I can't help but wonder why we can struggle with it like we do. It's so straightforward. So why can we so easily get off track? I want to suggest to you this morning that in, at least in part, our struggles with fulfilling the purpose of wellspring in our own lives may boil down to unbelief. Now, I am convinced that we all believe that if we um, that we are more fruitful when we shepherd our own hearts well. But perhaps what we may fail to believe is that there really is no good thing in us apart from Christ. We may not really believe that the church is weakened by poor shepherding of our hearts. We may not believe that the strength of the church really does depend on us. It does depend on you, and it does depend on me. There might be a temptation to sometimes believe that we can just coast falling into the deception that, you know, life is really just sometimes gets too busy to be in the Word. And we uh, can think, I think, sometimes that uh, it's really okay to just keep to ourselves. We really don't need to let anyone else get too close to us and believe that these things, none of these things, that that can't weaken the church. But that is exactly what weakens the body of Christ. Because, that, because what is behind that kind of thinking? That kind of thinking reveals that we believe that the gospel work of Jesus Christ in our own lives isn't powerful enough or valuable enough to impact anyone else. Do you see the deception in that? That is why we must preach the gospel to ourselves. Rehearsing gospel truths is the only thing that transforms our unbelief. It builds up our lack of confidence in the Lord, and it tears down our false confidence that we might have in ourselves. And it instills in us a delight for our Savior and a desire to display him 
so that he builds up his body through us. So discipline number two, then, ministering to those in our households is only possible when we do shepherd our own hearts well. Have you found that to be true? When we do care for our own hearts well with God's word, we can't help but love and serve and see God's grace in our homes. And today, as we focus specifically on discipline number three, our ministry, it is again absolutely vital that we keep the gospel at the very center of our thinking. If we don't, we will either fall into a sense of self-confidence or we will become paralyzed by our own inadequacy. Our call is high. There's no doubt about it. But we don't need to shrink back from our calling or from God's high standards. In order for this teaching to produce fruit in our lives, we need to place our confidence in the power of the gospel to produce fruit. And as we think about discipline number three, ministry, I think the first question that we need to ask is, what is ministry? And to answer that, maybe another question is really the best way to answer. And that is, what isn't ministry? Is there any area of our lives that is not ministry, in which we don't need to be concerned with our hearts and our gospel influence? Is there any area? No, there isn't. Ministry means being very intentional about living out gospel-transformed lives in everything, every minute of our, of our day and in every sphere of our lives. Now, that may include a particular ministry role God gives us in the church or in another ministry. It may include a particular person who really needs for us to invest time in them with the love of Christ and with the gospel. But we also don't want to miss ministry opportunities that exist maybe with that person at work that makes life really difficult for us. Or in seeking someone's forgiveness. Or in helping someone else see their sin. Or in caring for the hearts and needs of those in our own homes and in our extended family. So what is ministry? If we are followers of Christ, our whole life is ministry. So with that perspective, taking it back out of like a separate little um, place over here, I'm just, this is ministry and then this is my life. Now let's keep in perspective this morning, our life is ministry. And so with that perspective, um, we're going to look this morning at the ministry example of Paul. So would you open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1? And I'd like to read through the entire chapter this morning. It's a pretty short chapter. And then we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 5 through 10. So while you're turning there, let me remind, just remind you of a little bit of background. And this ought to be really fresh on our minds as we read through this passage this morning. We need to remember that Paul was with the Thessalonian church for a very short time. If you remember back when Paul was when Scott was preaching through Acts 17 just a few months ago, um, that he he reminded us that Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians from the scriptures for three Sabbaths. It was probably there just a little bit longer, but explaining the scriptures lasted three weeks. So let that sink in. A church existed in Thessalonica because Paul was faithful to preach the gospel for three weeks. Wow. When we think about that, that ought to cause us to be in awe of the power of the gospel. And so now, as we read from 1 Thessalonians, this is Paul writing to those Thessalonian believers about a year later. So follow with me as I read the chapter. And let's just be looking for evidences of the power of the gospel in the lives of these really young believers. Remember, it's only been about a year. 
Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And then Paul offers an explanation of what chosen ones look like and what ministry in the gospel looks like to chosen ones. So look at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for, our sa- for your sake. You also became imitators of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So now with our focus on verses 5 through 10, we're going to look at five ministry truths that I think will better help us understand discipline number three, what ministry is all about. So you have them in your outline. Let's start with the first one. Ministry has only one message, the gospel. If we're going to say... If we're going to talk about ministry, discipline number three, we must understand that ministry has one message, and it's the gospel. That's what Paul's saying in verse five. Now, I think it would be really beneficial if we um, stop for just a minute and we look and get a better understanding of what Paul, how Paul uses that term, the gospel. He uses it very broadly. So um, you'll see on your outline that there are some verses in Romans, and so we're going to start by looking at those, those passages in Romans this morning. I think it will really help us understand the way Paul viewed gospel ministry. So before we dig into 1 Thessalonians, I want you to turn to Romans. So if you turn to Romans chapter 1. And let's start in verse 7 to see which specific group in Rome Paul is writing this letter. He writes to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Now look down a few verses. Look to 11 and 12. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So it's clear in Paul's mind that he's writing to Christians, right? He's saying, I want to be encouraged by your faith in Jesus Christ, and I want you to be encouraged by my faith in Jesus Christ. You get the sense he's saying, I can't wait. I long to see you. I'm eager to come to you. Okay, now drop down to verse 15. He says, For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So again, who's Paul wanting to preach the gospel to? Christians, yes. Now, don't we usually think that the gospel is what we preach to unbelievers? I mean, isn't that the first thing that comes to your mind? Paul's thinking here, however, reveals that we often have a very narrow view of the gospel. It's true, we do preach the gospel to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe. But that is not the only purpose of the gospel. That kind of thinking is missing something very important. 
that the gospel still must be preached to those who are already in the faith. So the gospel must be preached to unbelievers with the hope that they believe, and the gospel must be preached to those who are believers. If we preach to one group while neglecting the other, we are guilty of having a narrow view of the gospel. So let's keep reading. Look down at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So in the first chapter of Romans, Paul's whole point is to preach to those who believe. Now let's go to the last chapter of Romans. Look at Romans 16. So Paul begins in verse 1 by greeting Christians who are in the churches. Phoebe, who's a servant of the church. Priscilla and Aquila, his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Mary, who has worked hard for them. He mentions his fellow prisoners, and he goes on listing many by name. Who's he talking about here? Yes, he's talking about Christians in the churches. Now, jump down to verse 25. How does the very last paragraph start? He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. So Paul wanted to establish these Christians according to the gospel. Paul's thinking was, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to preach the gospel to you who already believe. And then at the end of the letter... He said, I want you to be established, strengthened according to the gospel. So the first chapter is all about the gospel. And then in the, that's Paul's concern. And then in the last chapter, what's Paul concerned about? The gospel. So what do you think is going to be in between? The gospel, right? It's all about the gospel. In between those pages, in that, in that um, letter that he writes to the Romans, is some of the richest gospel theology that you find anywhere in the Word. So we need to understand how inseparable theology and gospel are. How important it is that our doctrine is in alignment with the gospel. It is all about the gospel. That's the way Paul saw it. You preach the gospel. You begin your Christian walk with the gospel. You take steps forward in the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's where all theology and doctrine are rooted. Again, they are inseparable. And what we need to remember as we step into one another's lives in our church and beyond our church is that this must be our leading concern as well. When we talk about discipline number three, we're talking about ministry concerning the gospel with one another. We're bringing the gospel into everything. We want to help one another engage in the fullness of the gospel. Okay, let's stop right here. Because we hear terms and phrases so often, I think sometimes, at least for me, it's helpful to stop um, from time to time and make sure that we haven't forgotten the meaning of that particular, um, and the meaning and the implication of that particular phrase. So let's think for just a minute about that phrase, the fullness of the gospel. What does that mean? It means that we're letting the gospel motivate our ministry and guide our ministry. We want to help one another understand the implications for the gospel in all of life. Think about all that we would miss 
If we stepped into one another's lives and gave the impression that the gospel was only that which saved us in the past. You see what we would miss? See, that Paul was not, didn't think that way. It wasn't the way he thought, and it can't be the way that we think. We need to remember that the gospel has everything to do with the way that we live now. So if we're saying that all of life is ministry, okay, that was our first point, all of life is ministry, and that ministry is all about the gospel, then what must we know? Thank you. The gospel. Yes, we must know the gospel. If we're bringing the gospel into everything, if it is how we were saved, and if we want to help one another understand how to use the gospel every day in our battle with sin, in our thought life, in our relationships, in our service, in everything then we need to know it. Romans 16, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 1, 6 tells us that the gospel is the power of God. It tells us what the gospel accomplishes in us, our union with Christ, and that we can now live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. So in our homework this week, we are going to be writing out the gospel. Now, I love this exercise. I'm so encouraged to be reminded by its truths. And as we do, we're going to want to include some very specific things, right? We want to remember to include the truth about God and his character, the truth about sin, what it is, its effects, and its consequences, the truth about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done, and the result, the effects, and the benefits of those who repent and believe this good news, forgiveness, and new life. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul writes that we need to understand four vitally important biblical concepts when we think about the gospel. If you want, you can write those in the blanks um, on your outline. Holiness. What would the gospel be if we didn't understand God's holiness? Justice. We need to understand that God is a just God. Sin and grace. He wrote that we cannot understand divine mercy until we have some understanding of divine justice. So I want to encourage you as you write out the gospel this week, as you think about God's character that you'd think about how God is holy and just and that he must therefore punish sin. Think about how he demonstrated his divine mercy on the elect by placing the punishment and penalty of sin, not on us, not on the guilty ones, but on the, on the one who was not guilty, on his son, the sinless one. You may want to remember to include how he saved us from God to God uh, to excuse me from God to God and by God. I think this exercise is so beneficial. I hope that it will be for you as we continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and purposes. We will be more sh- willing to share it with others, both with unbelievers and with believers, and will remember to rehearse its truths to our own hearts often. And so to help you better understand and communicate the gospel, when you came in, I hope that you got um, in the little packet some some resources that will, um, I think, will be really helpful to you as you think about the gospel. Um, So um, make sure that you go... Take advantage of that and go over it if you need some help. And maybe you have a good understanding of the gospel, but you need a little bit of help in understanding how to share it better. So if, if, uh, 
that's true. Um, I just pray that you'd really take advantage, immerse yourself, and look over those resources. They really are helpful. And I also just want to encourage you, if this is an area of weakness for you, if you either don't really have a great understanding of the gospel, maybe you understand how it saved you, but you don't really understand how it affects your life today, or maybe you have a, your weakness is that, you know, I understand the gospel, but I'm just really not great at communicating it with others. If that's true about us, then let's be humble and ask someone to help us understand. Because we have to remember, this isn't just information. You know, we don't want to just get it down in our homework to get the right answer. This isn't about knowing the right information. This is about knowing Christ. It, um, so it, it needs to saturate our thinking because it tells us about our Savior. When we're talking about ministry, this is what belongs in the center of our relationships, just as it did for Paul. That's why it's so important that we know it. This is what it means to make Christ the point of our life and not just a part of our life. This is what we need in order to come into our relationships thinking, you're my sister in Christ, and I want to encourage you with the gospel. And I want you to encourage me with the gospel. In reality, is this our thinking when we go to someone who's struggling? Or is this how we think when we're struggling? Do we ask others to preach the gospel to us? Because when we are struggling, what we need more than anything else is to be reminded of the great truths of the gospel and the power of the gospel. We need to believe that humbly going to the gospel together will give us eyes to see God's grace and to be transformed by his grace in that area in which we are struggling. That's what it means to be ministry-minded with one another. And this is the heart of effective gospel ministry that discipline number three is concerned with. Okay, let's go ahead and look at the second truth. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. So after seeing that ministry has only one message, the gospel, we now need to understand that Paul is also very much concerned, not just with the content of the message, but also with the carrier of the message. He reminded the Thessalonians of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 and look at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So how did the gospel come to them? It came in word. Okay, Paul wrote in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Have you ever heard the phrase, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words? Well, that's not what we see in scripture. Here, Paul makes it clear that the gospel came to them in word. But not in word only. It came in power. And it came in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And how do we know that the gospel came this way? What does Paul point to by way of evidence? Look again at verse 5. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That phrase, just as is a phrase showing comparison. It's almost like an equal sign. Paul is saying that the evidence that the gospel came to them in this way is the kind of messengers he and his co-laborers were. 
See, when he thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, he describes it by using these prepositional phrases. In power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So let's look at what each of these mean. Paul and his co-laborers came in power. He's talking about the power of God that accompanied their ministry. As they spoke, they were keenly aware of the presence of the supernatural power behind their words. It was God's power that brought conviction, right? We can't do that. If I come and I don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, my words are empty. So they were aware that it was God's power that brought conviction, Paul and his co-laborers knew that a power beyond them, it was only a power beyond them that could bring about transformation. They knew that the Holy Spirit's that the Holy Spirit was working through them to that end. The Holy Spirit was tangibly present and empowering them. That's one role of the Holy Spirit to empower gospel witnesses. And then Paul and his co-laborers came with full conviction. They had full confidence in the gospel. They were fully convinced of the power and the hope of the gospel. Again, because of the gospel's power at work through them. And we also need to be this kind of messenger. An uncommon messenger who brings the gospel to unbelievers and to believers, knowing that the power of God accompanies our ministry. It's nothing without him. We must acknowledge that He, that the Holy Spirit is the one empowering us as gospel witnesses. And therefore, we can have full confidence in the gospel for every circumstance. We're called to be that kind of messenger. But I'll be honest, when I evaluate my own life, I realize that I don't always remember as I bring the gospel into my relationships to pray, God, I need your power. I need the Holy Spirit. And I need full conviction in the gospel, that the gospel is sufficient in every situation, in everything. But what if we did remember to pray that way as we bring the gospel to our families, our friends, those in the church, those beyond the church? Do you see the difference that that would make? See, we wouldn't be dependent on our own strength if we prayed that way, would we? We would be dependent on God. So how do we become that kind of woman? I hope your minds went to discipline number one. We shepherd our hearts to the word of God to meet with him. Because when we do that, what does it show us? It shows us how desperately we need him. And we plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through our ministry. And what does that power look like? Turn over to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul tells us in verses 7 and 8 of 1 Thessalonians 2, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Now, is that how we typically think of power? Is that how you would define power? Gentle, like a nursing mother, tender care, affection? If it's not, then you know what? We need to change our definition of power. We need to change the way that we think about power. 
because that describes Paul. But it doesn't only describe Paul, it describes Jesus, who is the most powerful man and also the gentlest and meekest man on the earth. And that brings us to number three. Ministry involves imitation. Let's look at verse six. He says, you, became, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. That was the evidence of the gospel's work in them. The Thessalonian believers began to pattern their lives after the example set by Paul and his co-laborers. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul said it this way, Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. See, Paul's, Paul's pattern of life was so in alignment with Christ's pattern of life that he could say, if you imitate me, you will be imitating Christ. As we bring the gospel to each other, our thinking and our prayer needs to be, God, make me an imitatable woman. Ladies, people are watching us. What the gospel enables us to do as we align our lives with Christ is to live a life worth imitating. So practically speaking, what should be our desire? What should our prayer be? What should our plan be? It must be that we would so align our lives with Christ that others might imitate our life as we imitate Christ. Now, what does having a life worth imitating look like? Because that's a pretty heavy thing to think about, right? So let's, let's look at it a little bit closer. It means that every day and all throughout our day, we're shepherding our hearts by meditating on the gospel, by going to the cross with our sin and rejoicing that Christ paid for that sin. He died for it, and we no longer are a slave to it. We can be obedient. We must shepherd our hearts to God and plead with him to conform us into the image of Christ. Paul understood that. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. And yet, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, how can one who considers themselves to be the foremost of sinners say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? See, he could only say that because he understood the gospel's implications in his own heart. And so must we. When we do, it brings a humble joy as we rest in the completed work of Christ on the cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, that kind of Galatians 2.20 living is worth imitating. Now let's go back to Thessalonians um, and let's keep looking at verse 6. And we'll see under what circumstances the Thessalonians imitated Paul. They imitated him, you see it, in much tribulation. What about you? What about me? Is our life worth imitating when we're going through hard times? Do others say, you're really a good example to me as I watch you go through this trial? See, that really needs to be our goal and our prayer, that others would be able to imitate us in the midst of tribulation. 
And then the rest of verse 6 tells us that they imitated him with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So while the Thessalonian believers experienced great tribulation because of their faith, they were experiencing joy, a joy that came from the Holy Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit that enabled the Apostle Paul to preach with power enabled the Thessalonian believers to joyously endure their sufferings. Their joy and suffering drew attention by those who were watching these believers because because tribulation didn't diminish the Thessalonians' joy. And you know what? It doesn't have to diminish our joy. Tribulation and joy can coexist. It should coexist when we submit to the Holy Spirit's work in us. James 1-2 tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now that word consider means to think carefully about, especially with regard to how we will take action. So when we're in a trial, we're to think carefully about it in such a way that it will guide our response to that trial. That means that we choose to focus not on our circumstance, but on God and who he is. We choose to be thankful in the trial, knowing what God will do through that trial. When we choose to submit to God in his transforming work in us, we will experience joy. A joy that can be seen by others. And it will be a joy that will only encourage them as they learn to trust God in their trials. That's how we become imitatable. And let's look at number four. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Let's look at verse 7. In verse 6, we said that the Thessalonian believers became imitators of Paul and his companions and of the Lord. And then verse 7 says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The Thessalonians became imitators of Paul and of the Lord for a reason. So that, at the beginning of verse 7, indicates a purpose. So you became imitators for the purpose of becoming an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So do you see that chain reaction that's taking place in gospel ministry? First, Christ is being imitated by Paul. Next, Paul is being imitated by the Thessalonian believers. And then the Thessalonian believers were examples to be imitated by the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And ladies, that's how we need to be thinking as well. This is what we need to set our sights on in gospel ministry. Our goal is to imitate Christ. And we imitate him so that we become examples for others to follow. Because our lives are in alignment with Christ. But we see here in Paul's thinking that even that goal, that aim isn't high enough. Our desire in ministry is to be that those who imitate us will then grow to be examples for others to follow. When we, step, when we step into gospel ministry, into the lives of another person, we want to go into that relationship thinking, as I, by God's grace, am an example for you to follow, I want you to be preparing. I want to help to prepare you to become examples for others to follow. That's an effective life. Let's look at verse 8, because it gives us even greater insight into what we mean by an effective life. 
for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That word for indicates that proof is about to, to be shown. So how does Paul know that the Thessalonians were an example? Because the word of the Lord had sounded forth from them, not only in Macedonia, in Achaia, but in every place their faith toward God had gone forth. And that term sounded forth describes that it was like a trumpet blast. And the verb is in, a per, is in perfect tense, indicating the lasting, the long-lasting effect of that blast. Have you ever heard, I don't know about you, but my kids were in band. And I just re, I remember sometimes hearing a tr- one of the trumpet players. They would blow that horn, and that sound, even after they stopped blowing, would just hang in the air. It would just linger there. That's the idea here. That's what he's talking about. The gospel was being proclaimed by the Thessalonian believers far and wide. And then verse 8 shows us how effective they were with the word of God. Let's keep reading. It says, so that we have no need to say anything. Who's writing this? The Apostle Paul. Paul and his co-labors had nothing to add, nothing to say. Think about that. There were places that the Apostle Paul didn't have to go because the Thessalonian believers were so effective in blasting forth the gospel that the good news of the gospel had already traveled there. Isn't that encouraging? God's word and their faith in Christ was proclaimed so effectively and their lives were so thoroughly transformed as believers that there was no need for Paul to add anything to it. That is an effective life of ministry. So, we've said that living a life of ministry means that the gospel is our message. It's what we're always looking to share with others, right? With believer, with unbelievers and with believers. And it means being an uncommon messenger with the gospel, displaying God's power and, and the Holy Spirit and conviction through gentleness. And it means being a, an example to others, living a life of repentance and submitting to God in such a way that we have joy in the midst of trials. And then we need to desire that people actually imitate our example. We want to be so effective that ministry is multiplied, that ministry continues on through others. That's our goal. So we need to pray that God would raise up others who would speak even more broadly than we do. Think about the next generation. Think about what God might do through your little ones. Let that be your goal, your aim, your desire, your prayer as you raise them up. That they would become even more effective in their gospel ministry than you are. And then the last thing that we're going to talk about this morning is that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. We see that in verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So what was being reported about these Thessalonian believers? Paul said first, the kind of reception we had with you. Now that word reception is a word for an entrance. So what kind of an entrance did Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had, 
they had a wide open entrance, a welcome path right into their lives. Their ministry was well received by the Thessalonians. So Paul here is again emphasizing the, how important the messenger is. And what kind of a messenger was Paul? What do we need to take note of? His manner among them. And the, and the kind of man that he proved to be among them. By that I mean that his behavior was never an obstacle to the gospel. Have you ever heard someone speak or share the gospel and think, wow, I love what they said. Ooh, but the way that they said it, that was offensive. See, Paul knew that the kind of messenger he was was every bit as important as the message that he brought to them. So that's the first thing that was being reported about the Thessalonians. Let's look at this second part of verses 9 and 10 and see what else was being reported about them. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Those from the surrounding areas heard and were telling others that the Thessalonians had turned to God from idols. What's the word that we use when someone turns from sin? Repentance, yes. People were reporting that the Thessalonians had repented from their idolatrous past to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Though Paul's time with the Thessalonians was short, remember how long? How long was he with them? Maybe three weeks. Even though it was a short time, his time with them wasn't shallow. It wasn't empty. It wasn't a hollow time. No, their time together was marked with fullness. Because he was preaching the gospel with them. It wasn't watered down in any way. Paul preached a gospel of repentance. See, Paul's goal in being well received by the Thessalonians was so that they would repent and turn to the Lord. Now, I think often, I know for me anyway, um, we li- I, I like the first part of that. I like to be liked, to be well-received, to be welcomed. But that obviously isn't enough. Point number five is that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. We labor for transformation of life. We labor to see people serve the living and true God and long for Jesus' return. That means we cannot water down the gospel in any way. Because if we are only likable in gospel ministry, but people don't actually change, that that should really bother us. We should be very burdened by that thought. We must persevere for the hope of repentance for gospel-transformed lives, in our friendships, in our parenting, our workplace, with our neighbors, to our parents, to everyone with whom we share the gospel, unbelievers and believers. Again, our message must be clear, not watered down, but showing them their need for repentance. And all of this is done gently. Like a nursing mother, we must not be harsh or abrasive. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, 
with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. So what's our responsibility in that? It is our responsibility and our privilege to be that kind of messenger. We want the right gospel content. We want the right message. That's why we're giving you gospel resources this morning. That's why you're writing out the gospel in your homework this week. Because if we don't have the right gospel, repentance won't come. But what this is drawing our attention to is that we've got to be a certain kind of woman with the gospel message delivery. We need to be gentle, able to teach, patient when wronged, and we cannot be quarrelsome. The focus in ministry, in our homes, in every relationship, is not only what we say, but every bit on the kind of woman we must be. And if we're going to be that kind of woman, we come back to discipline number one. We shepherd our hearts. We must. We shepherd our hearts because we're concerned that our homes become places where the gospel shapes our care and our input into the lives of others. When we step into people's lives, we want the right message and we're concerned about the kind of women that we are. This is what we're aiming for as we gather together each week at Wellspring. And once Wellspring is over, and it almost is, and we move on, we never graduate from this. We never move on from shepherding our hearts and we never stop ministering God's way, the way we saw this morning with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We know that it is your power. You are the one that brings conviction in the lives of people. But Father, by your design, by your plan, you call us to be messengers of your gospel, to bring the gospel into others' lives, believers and unbelievers. And Father, as we do, we want a life of ministry where the gospel is our message. Father, I pray that we would always be looking for opportunities to share that gospel. And that by your grace, as a result of your work in our own lives, that we would be an uncommon messenger with that gospel. That we would display your power with conviction, with confidence. That we would actually be an example to others that we would live lives of repentance, and that we would have joy in the midst of our trials. Father, it is our desire that people would actually, by your grace, imitate our example. And we pray also that as we do, that you would raise up others who will speak even more broadly than we do. Father, please give us um, the right thinking for the next generation. All of these moms in this room who are raising up little ones. Father, I pray for them this morning that they would pour into their lives in such a way that their gospel ministry would be even greater. Father, we plead for you for that. And as we do, Father, as we... Um, minister to that next generation with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family. Father, I pray that we would be so careful to not water down your gospel with the hopes of being liked, but Father, that we would be faithful to preach the true gospel, that our goal would be for repentance, that we would present 
the truth of the gospel in such a way that uh, you would be able to use our words, our gospel message, and our lives to bring others to yourself. Father, that's our prayer. We ask that in Jesus' name.